Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome back to the Prepoint Pod. I'm Louise, I'm your host, and my guest today is Dr. Melanie Fuller, who is a dance physiotherapist based in Brisbane. Today we're going to talk about her PhD, which investigated patterns of injury in pre-professional ballet and contemporary dance, as well as discuss some ways dancers can prepare for training coming into a new year, looking at reducing their risk of injury. I hope this episode inspires you to go get them, but just don't get them all at once. Hello Mel, welcome to the Prepoint Pod. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks Louise, it's great to be here. Just thinking a bit about, you know, our, our history and where we first met each other. And I can remember, actually, it was at a, um, a contemporary dance class in Brisbane. And that was at what's now Australasian Dance Collective, which, yeah, yeah right. that was a very long time ago. <laughs> yep, how time flies. <laughs> yeah, definitely does. You know, you've, you've always been a really great mentor for me since since that time and it's yeah it's actually really cool to have you on the podcast now and talk a bit about your research and what you're doing at the moment yeah I think this is a great platform to get um, really good information out to young dancers just give our audience today a brief explanation of who you are what you're doing at the moment sure Okay, well, I've worked in dance physiotherapy for just over 14 years now, working from recreational to professional levels of dance. Uh, I've worked in-house with dance companies and in training institutions, as well as in private practice. Um, I'm currently working as a dance physiotherapist in Brisbane at the Queensland Sports Medicine Centre, and I work casually with the Australian Ballet as well. I am a titled sports and exercise physiotherapist as well as a musculoskeletal physiotherapist. Um, So that means I've got master's level qualifications in those areas of physio. Um, I've completed a PhD where I've investigated reducing injuries in dance, which I think we're going to talk a little bit more about some of the work that I've published. Um, And my research continues in an adjunct position that I have at James Cook University. And I also serve as president of the Australian Society for Performing Arts Healthcare. And it's great to be here on your podcast, Louise. Thank you. Absolutely. What a what a long list of, of expertise. It's really fabulous, actually, to have you talking today. So I'm going to ask a bit about your PhD. And so you've worked in private practice with lots of dancers from all different genres and, and experience levels. So what were some of those experiences that you had working with those dancers in clinic that helped you shape your research question? Yes, yeah, and I'm really passionate about that link between the clinic and research. And I guess as a reflective practitioner over the years, I've started to recognise patterns of injury, such as an increase in dancers presenting with injuries at certain times of the year. And I felt like I was recognising a common factor to different injury presentations, which was training load. 
I use that term training load as an all-encompassing term that relates to the prescription or planning of their training, uh, which you can break down to the training variables of volume, intensity, and the frequency of training, and training principles of periodization and individualization. So another factor that I was interested in was understanding subsequent injuries. We know from research that previous injury is the biggest risk factor to future injuries across sports as well as in dance. And so I wanted to better understand those sorts of injuries when dancers are getting injured a second, third, or potentially further times. And that related to stories that I'd hear from dancers that would present with injuries, but they've already sustained a previous injury. Mm. And so you eventually, studied this in a, in a cohort of dancers. Tell us a little bit about the cohort of dancers that you were looking at. Yeah, great. So some of the research I've done has been on previous research um, where I did systematic reviews and meta-analysis. So that's pooling together research that's been conducted by other people and perhaps um, doing different calculations on that work. Uh, so the cohorts in that space I looked at were both pre-professional and professional cohorts, training in ballet, and contemporary dance. Uh, and then my original research was conducted on a cohort of tertiary ballet and contemporary dance students. Mm. So there's actually two different um, components to your research. And the one that you mentioned, the systematic review. So that looks at lots of different research that's been published all over the, all over the world, really. And um, I guess like bringing together lots of data from lots of different studies so that we can kind of look at similar patterns and trends. Is that kind of how you would explain it as well? Yes. Yeah. Spot on, Louise. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I'm really grateful for the work that's been done over the years. And I think it's useful uh, to look at it in a different way, um, to look at some of the research questions that I've had. Yeah. And so with that systematic review, what did you find? What sort of information came, came out of that? Great. Well, there were two separate studies, so I'll just um, talk about them both separately. The first one I looked at when injuries occur across the dancer's training and career development. And as I mentioned, in pre-professional and professional ballet and contemporary dance cohorts, I might just hone in on the more relevant findings for pre-professional dancers. And I'll consider just two separate studies. So they had conflicting findings. There was one study from Lee and colleagues published back in 2017, which was on a cohort of ballet and contemporary dance students. And in that study, my calculation showed that the first year students had more injuries, significantly more injuries than the second and third years. So we can relate that to a potential change in training load where dancers are transitioning to full-time training and starting to increase their training hours. Another interesting finding reported in that study was that there were more upper limb injuries in the first years compared to the second and third years. So because this was a cohort training in contemporary dance as well, I would relate that to an increase in contemporary technique loads, which we can recognise that contemporary dance might involve more upper limb loads and upper quadrant loads, weight bearing through the arms, potentially different upper back and neck movements and things like that. So I think they're things we can consider uh, in terms of what might relate to injuries if that was a big change going from not being exposed to that sort of training load to doing a whole lot more of that. But uh, another study which showed conflicting findings to that 
research was in a study by Eckergren and colleagues in 2014. So mm. this study was on um, pre-professional ballet students. And from my calculations, I showed the first years actually had less injuries, uh, significantly less injuries than the second and the third years. Mm. So to think about that study, um, which is a little bit different in this training context where the third years were starting to do more rehearsal hours and more performance work, uh, where that can be different to just doing classwork in the earlier year levels of the training program. So there's been research from Matthew Y on showing the difference in dance from for performance where there's a higher uh, oxygen consumption for performance as opposed to classwork and rehearsals. So we can see how that can be a jump in training load as well, not to mention other differences to perform, you know, potentially performing at different times of the day, and coping with things like performance anxiety to perform in front of an, an audience. Uh, costumes are involved, different lighting might impact on different hydration. There are many different factors that might relate to why that's different. Um, but yeah, I think it's interesting to consider the conflicting findings with those two studies that were included in my systematic review. And if I Transition now to the other systematic review that you referred to, Louise. <laughs> so this time I looked at when injuries occur across a training year. And again, I looked at studies from pre-professional and professional ballet and contemporary dance. And when we pulled the findings together uh, from these different studies, we showed that it was the second and the third months of the training year relative to all the other months in the training year that had significantly more injuries. So this time we could relate that to returning to dance after a holiday period. So to start the year where dancers may be potentially deconditioned and it could be a case of too much too soon. And that's been seen in other research in sports where there can be a delay in the presentation of these injuries. So um, referring to research in fast bowlers in cricket, where there was a three to four week delay in the presentation of injuries after a spike in training load. So these injuries shown in our systematic review and meta-analysis, those injuries happening in the second and third month of the training year, it could just be a delay after that potential spike in training load to come back after the holidays where they may not have been training and it's added up to too much too soon. And so do you think it's the same, you know, looking at, at the at the cricket studies, so it's three to four weeks delay, do you reckon that's the same in dance? Is it the same for lots of different dance cohorts or are some dance cohorts different? What did you find there? Well, we did do a subgroup analysis in that study where we considered the pre-professional cohorts versus the professional cohorts. And the pre-professional cohorts had significantly more injuries still in the second month whereas the professional cohorts showed significantly more injuries in the third month. But if we look at the timing of when these studies were conducted, uh, the professional studies were done quite earlier than the more recent pre-professional studies. So we don't know exactly, but I think there may be uh, a change in how research has been conducted over the years. Um, so potentially uh, injuries may be reported a little bit earlier as well. So that might explain for those differences between the pre-professional cohorts versus the professional cohorts. Um, but overall, I think the message is uh, that we want to prepare to come back to the training year um, or coming back to the season for professional companies so that it's not a shock to the system coming back from a holiday period. So that would be sort of akin to um, doing pre-season training before 
you know, starting sport. I think the challenge is with dance is that, you know, it is, it's a year round, it's often a year round endeavor. So it's not, you know, just a winter or summer sport like, you know, cricket or football. So I think it's, it's actually quite a challenge for dancers to balance enough rest with the preparation for coming into that, that year. So I guess that comes back to, you know, a clinical question. Cause again, like it's probably quite an individual thing, um, depending on a specific dancer's workload um, and experience like what are some things that you would do in the clinic to you know to help a dancer prepare for that that jump in training load yeah for sure Um, Mm. that's a great question Louise Um, so as young dance students are getting older I think they take on the responsibility more and more to be prepared to come back to the training year but when they're younger they're going to be working with their students to try and get that balance right. And it's so true what you said. It's, it's quite a challenge to get the balance um, between doing supplemental training to prepare for the demands of dance and balancing that with all your technique training. So in elite sports for athletes, and I think we can call dancers uh, performing athletes, they would focus at the beginning of the year to train their strength and aerobic fitness. So dancers could consider doing this as well, whether it's in the holiday period before you come back to your technique classes or whether it's balanced when you do return to your technique classes. But that's a good time of the year when there isn't a performance coming up straight away or there isn't a dance exam coming up straight away where the focus can turn to developing strength and aerobic fitness. And perhaps the focus at these times is not on your technique classwork. But if you do it all together, it can sometimes add up to too much. So we've got to balance these things. And just to give our listeners some incentive, in rugby league studies, and I'm referring to some research from Tim Gabbard, they showed in some of their research when they reduced the duration of training, so the volume of training, or decreasing the intensity of training in their pre-season, that they reduced injuries and they still had increases in their fitness parameters. So sometimes less is more. Um, And another study just comes to mind from Kudadakis in a a professional dance cohort where the dancers were actually fitter coming back at the beginning of the year compared to what they were at the end of the season before. So as much as I wouldn't recommend relying on a holiday period to get fit and healthy, Um, we can just recognise that rest is really useful. And in that cohort, perhaps they were overtrained and fatigued by the end of that year. So their fitness actually got better when they came back at the beginning of the year and maybe they just had really good recovery time. We've got to utilise those recovery strategies as well. And I think sleep and diet are the most obvious recovery strategies we want to make sure young dancers have good information about. Yeah, absolutely. So it is a bit of getting the balance right. Um, and taking advantage of the holiday and the and the rest that you do have, that's really interesting. Looking at the at the football study as well, um, mm. you know, even though it's not dance, you know, and I know that it's sort of always challenging to kind of extrapolate findings from other sports to ballet, but I think sometimes it's really important that we consider that it is an athletic endeavor, really, like like football, like cricket. So I guess talking about a little bit more about, because you mentioned it before, the volume mm-hmm. and intensity and the frequency. So duration times intensity is volume. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if, if we're looking at total workload, we're looking at the time you spend 
times by how hard you think it is equaling a whole workload so and because dance like you can't measure how many kilometers you run or you can't measure how many jumps you do yet um and we'll probably talk a little bit more about this (laughs) later but it's really hard for dancers to actually measure what they're doing in the studio right like it's actually super challenging because there's so many specific movements and sometimes it's on point and sometimes it's in a costume and sometimes you have a massive headpiece on and you can't see where you're going. I'm just thinking about <laughs> rat costumes in Nutcracker because it's December now and sometimes, sure. you know, you have a tail <laughs> or you're flying in a harness, you know. <laughs> there are yeah, so many right. challenges with, um, with dance performance because it's so versatile. So what are some ways that you would also, in this is clinically speaking now, what are some ways that you could help dancers to measure how much they're, they're doing um, so that they actually know whether what they're doing in the holidays is enough or it's less than or more than um, what they're doing coming back into training? Yeah, great question, Louise. Yep. And with all the research I've done, that's my aim to optimise training load management practices as an injury reduction strategy. So, yes, as we've referred to training load as the planning and the prescription of training. And the gold standard could be to monitor this training to ensure that dancers are adapting positively to their training and not adapting negatively, which could in turn lead to fatigue and injury. So, and with that monitoring information, then the prescription and the planning of training can be better informed uh, so we can manage these training loads more optimally. So, It's a really good example of where health and fitness professionals can be working side by side by artistic staff, be that dance teachers or choreographers and artistic directors, those people that may be um, in the studio sort of planning these training loads. So, yes, you you sort of um, identify one of the more uh, common monitoring strategies where you're looking at um, training load as the measure of the duration of training, so how many minutes of training, and you would multiply that number with a rating of perceived exertion from the dancer as a number from 0 to 10. So that gives you a simple number that you can monitor over time uh, to check for any spikes in training load. But it can be as simple as just asking the dancers that you're working with, if we're referring to dance teachers, just asking them, how are you today? And giving them the opportunity to let them let you know if they're feeling tired or fatigued or stressed out. Um, so it just gives some insights about where those individuals are, because I recognise that there may be not the monitoring strategies available to all contexts of dance at the moment, but this could be a simple strategy, uh, as I said, just to ask dancers how they are. So it can be beneficial twofold. It starts to make the student sort of reflect on how they are and what are the things that may have influenced them to feel tired. Were they up late last night finishing assignment (laughs) and maybe didn't get their optimal hours of sleep last night? Um, But it also informs the dance teacher where the students in your class are. So it does get tricky when you've got a number of dancers in your class because we're aiming to individualise training loads and I can understand teachers have a number of students in their class, Um, but it makes them aware of where the students are because there are other factors in a dance student's day that's going to impact how ready they are for that class. As I mentioned, if they've got lots of schoolwork at the moment and they're stressed or they've been staying up late, late to finish assignments, or perhaps they've 
just had other dance workshops with other dance teachers. So they've been working certain muscle groups a little bit harder. Um, so these are all good things to reflect on and to consider how that's going to impact the plan for that day. So if the students are sort of reporting that they're um, tired and sore, then perhaps it's not the day to be working on repetitive allegro work, particularly if the class you're working with has just gone up a skill level, they've just passed a dance exam, they're starting to learn the next skill level. Um, so those higher level skills or those more intense skills may not be the focus for that class. Um, and you can look at different strategies where you're using your brain and learning material, but not working on the physical repetition of those loads, the number of jumps, or another example might be the number of devil pays to second, for instance. <laughs> but they can just give you some um, ideas on little things that may just be modified in response to what you're hearing from your students so that we're not leading to overload. Yeah, it's it seems like a, a complicated recipe at first, I guess when it's sort of at the forefront of your mind, you know, especially around those weeks that we know dancers tend to get a bit more injured. So coming back after holidays, it probably is quite important to do a little bit more consistent um, check-in, you know, how are you going? Yeah, yeah, and even... Um, you know, there are so many different ways that dancers can can learn choreography and, and reflect and, and learn and improve technique without physically repeating things over and over again. And then, you know, there are times when actually you do need to do that repetition and you do need to do that build up and that training because otherwise you won't be ready for the push when you need to get there. So I guess when you're monitoring and measuring these things, it kind of works both ways, right? So you can work out when you exactly. push. If you've had a pretty chill day, you're like, yep, I'm ready for a hard session. And um, and also those days when you need to, to pull back a little bit. Yeah. Absolutely. And yeah. a good example just comes to mind, like when you're leading up to a performance season or a dance exam, then that's the time when your focus should be on your technique work. And the supplemental training that we're referring to, like the strength and aerobic training, that the focus is not... Um, on those things at that time. So you might reduce the volume of that sort of training, but you're maintaining the intensity of your technique work um, and the skill-based work so that you're performing at your best when the performance comes up or perhaps it's that, that dance exam. Um, but, yeah, the focus isn't on continually getting stronger and fitter. Maybe that's maintained for the weeks leading up to when you want to perform at your best when your skills are more important and what you're doing uh, in technique classes is more important to be intensified yeah it's sort of that kind of yeah peaks and troughs kind of idea I guess yeah, yeah that's right yeah taking a real backtrack now um but coming back to injury so I'd, I'd love to ask you a bit more about um about that so when you were looking at injuries what were you classifying as an injury so in this in the systematic review and any other sort of studies that might have come from that or or maybe even just trends that are reported in the literature, what is being classified as a dance injury? So is it just like, mm. oh, my ankle's feeling a bit like swollen and stiff today, but I can still do full class, um, but I will still go see the physio about it. Is that an injury or is it is that a niggle? Like, do we classify them differently? What are your thoughts there? Yeah, it's a really interesting area, Louise. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, in the research, the, there can be different in injury definitions. So self-reported injuries may be those injuries that you could refer to as niggles that uh, dancers are reporting on but perhaps they're not 
presenting to a medical practitioner or a health practitioner. So, and then that definition can change to a medical attention injury definition. So in my systematic review where I looked at when injuries occur across the training year, we did do a subgroup analysis looking at self-reported injuries versus medical attention injuries. And I sort of referred to this before, but the self-reported injuries, that subgroup, those injuries uh, seem to appear just a little bit earlier than the medical attention injuries. So we can see it's really useful to pay attention to those niggles or self-reported injuries because potentially they may turn into something else. Okay. Um, if I let you know a little bit more information about another study that I did, um, and this was my original research on a cohort of pre-professional tertiary ballet and contemporary dance students, the injury definition we used here was a medical attention injury definition. So in that cohort, they had access to see a, a physiotherapist. So they were the injuries that were reported on, those injuries that prevent, presented, I should say, to a physiotherapist. So we didn't in that study look at self-reported injuries. We did look at time loss injuries, which can be another injury definition altogether. Um, and commonly research would consider a time loss injury where dancers had to withdraw from class or rehearsals for 24 hours or longer. And that was a similar definition that we used in uh, this study I'm referring to. And in that study, um, we found only three of the 119 injuries that were recorded in the study were time loss injuries. Uh, and to give you a bit more information about that study, it was a three-year study um, where we retrospectively looked at data that the participants of the study gave us consent to look at. So that was 119 injuries that were extracted from physiotherapy notes um, when these participants presented to the physiotherapist on site. But yeah, I think they're the more common injury definitions that we'll see reported in the literature, self-report injuries which could be those niggles, which I think matter. And I'm really interested in that space in research. Medical attention injuries, when a dancer presents to have it, an injury assessed and diagnosed, as well as time loss injuries, which gives an indication potentially of a more severe injury when a dancer needs to stop training. And I think the classic example of a more severe injury that requires more time loss in dance is bone stress injuries which I know Louise is, knows all they're about. My, they're <laughs> my favorite but they're also my least favorite because I know that they take so long to recover and yes. you have to stop dancing for them to get better. Yeah I can uh, see what you mean there Louise. <laughs> yeah yeah um, so I'm really interested in in preventing them basically. <laughs> Yep, we share that common interest. <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah, so that's really interesting. So you were saying there were three time loss injuries over three years? That's right, from that yeah. data. Yeah, I mean, yeah. we've got to recognise some limitations. Uh, yep. There may have been some injuries that were presenting to external physiotherapists so they may not have come out in our data. But, yeah, it, it did appear that there were uh, not so many time loss injuries, not so many of those more severe injuries in the cohort that we investigated. So were there anything, any, was there anything that, because you mentioned also that you measured subsequent injury as well, so injuries that happened after the first injury, um, I was sort of thinking in my mind that maybe those dancers who had the time loss injuries were also maybe more likely to, to suffer 
a subsequent injury. But when you've only got such a small portion of dancers having time loss injury, so really even those niggles um, still make a dancer susceptible to having further injuries as well, which again mm. then leans on leans to your your recommendation that you know even those little niggles are really important to address early to stop further injuries down the track. Is that correct? That's right. Yes, yes, it would be really interesting to look at those different injury definitions and how that may relate to subsequent injuries. But yeah, as you mentioned, we didn't have very many time loss injuries. So that analysis wasn't possible from the data that we had. Um, but you're giving me lots of ideas for future research, Louise. <laughs> so thank you. <laughs> I'm glad. Um, um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I love these it's, conversations. It stimulates, you know, lots well, of Well, it's such an untouched space, really. Like, I mean, mm. when we compare dance research to, say, research in AFL or in Olympic sports, we just don't know as much as, as we should or we could, I think. Like, I think there's a big... Um, a big opening there for anyone who's interested in, in in examining different injuries. And I think my understanding of the literature so far or the information that's out there that's, you know, people have reported injury, they report injury in dance in a really general sense, but there's not a very, very much of a specific focus on different types of injury. Um, I feel like, you know, the ankle sprains and sort of the common ones, like, Yes, they probably have been reported and maybe there'll be dancers that are, you know, that are in a, in a wider cohort of athletes or even gymnasts that are in a wider cohort of athletes and you can kind of have a look at specific types of injury. But I think what I'm really interested in is, is yeah, specific types of injury within dance mm. as well because I think not every injury is the same um, and they, they have slightly different risk factors too. Like training load is a really good risk factor because it's kind of all encompassing. If you don't dance, you're probably not going to get injured dancing. <laughs> the exposure is obviously like a really interesting thing to look at on in a broader sense that can be applied to lots of different types of injury. But yeah, mm. certainly there are other, other factors. Fantastic. You just made me think coming back to that exposure side of things and that can be a challenge to collect that sort of data um, but when we looked at our systematic reviews we looked at the prevalence of injuries or risk ratios which takes into account the number of dancers injured versus the number of dancers and when we looked at that sort of data there was nothing significant but that relates to the high majority of dancers that get injured to start with so you haven't got any comparison. Whereas when we looked at the number of injuries that a dancer sustained, so when they got injured more than once, so again, just showing that interest I have in subsequent injuries, um, and that would be relative to the number of hours of training they did, the more interesting findings came out. So they're the things that I'm referring to where there were more significant findings at different times of the year and different uh, stages of training development. Mm. If I can just add uh, another thought from subsequent injuries and we were talking about time loss injuries another study comes to mind from Alan uh, and this was in a UK professional dance cohort they showed um, over time that they were successful at reducing the incidence of injuries so that's the number of injuries versus an exposure measure but they weren't as good at reducing the amount of time loss so I think that reflects on a useful strategy to reduce the risk of subsequent injuries. So if an injury does require time loss, we want to respect recovery times from injury. And I think if we respect those recovery times and healing times, then that in itself may be useful at reducing the risk of future 
to injuries because from my research we showed there was a, a little bit of a snowball effect. So there was a shorter period of time between the first and second injury and versus the second and third injury. And there can be common findings in sports as well. So it just highlights, and again, sharing that information from the study by Alan, that uh, sometimes you do need sufficient recovery times. And it may not be complete time off dance, and it might be modifying your dance activities. And another important factor to aim to reduce the risk of subsequent injuries is to ensure that they, those injuries are adequately rehabilitated. So that's one of the, my favourite parts of my job, doing the detective work to assess for contributing factors. So whether it be what we talked about today, a change in training load, trying to find where something might have changed where your body wasn't ready to adapt positively to that change, or whether it was things like um, insufficient strength or imbalances from right to left, uh, not enough aerobic fitness to give you enough resilience towards your dance training. So there could be things like that that can be identified when you present to a health professional that might set you up to reduce the risk of a subsequent injury. And we keep talking about strength training because I believe it's so important and it's um found in the research in sports that that is what is successful at reducing the risk of injury not so much stretching training so yeah I want to get that message out there that we want dancers to think about getting stronger um, so whether that be being able to uh, perform an exercise more repeatedly when you're thinking about strength endurance or at appropriate times of training development, being able to lift heavier weights, for example, as another indication of strength. But I think that's a really important thing that um, we want dancers to be aware of to aim to reduce the risk of injuries. Mm. And like strength training, you're saying lifting heavy weights. I mean, really that is a way for us to measure power. So how much force mm. your body can produce um, in a certain time, right? Um, yeah, at different yeah. speeds and things. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And so, you know, obviously you might use weights to give you that stimulus. Um, and that's why we would choose, you know, to do resistance training, really. And I guess even for supplementary training income in a holiday period of time or like a, a supplementary training session that might be an easy session, you know, because everything else is, is quite demanding, things like coordination balance just maintaining or look, working more on like a lower level endurance type exercise would kind of make more sense but it's still maintaining still maintaining something um so you're not kind of letting it go completely just because like your workload gets really really hectic does that make sense to you yeah no i agree um so yes i think the message is to try and maintain some version of supplemental training but yes, at certain times um, when you're leading up to performance seasons or exams, for instance, that, yeah, that can't be the main focus. Um, yeah. So you're maintaining those levels of proprioception, coordination, strength, aerobic fitness, but yeah, making sure it's balanced with what you're doing for technique and skill development. Yeah. I guess what I'm taking from what we've, what we've talked about, you would like to see in the research space, a better understanding of subsequent injury in dance perhaps and ways that we can and work on fully rehabilitating injuries before going back in and you know trying to push really hard and and ways that we can make that 
make it feasible or make it doable in a dance environment because quite often, you know, there are so many time pressures, right, with different rehearsals and performances and it's challenging if you're in a competition team or if you're in a ballet company, for example, and you have, you know, opening night in four weeks' time but your injury mm. might not take that, might take longer to, to heal fully. I guess it's just making that decision about when you're going to take time to really get it better. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And Yes, lengthy recovery times is never popular (laughs) for various different stakeholders, be it the individual dancer that may have sustained an injury or when the people in control of casting when they want to put you on stage. Mm. Um, So, yes, and it's all got to fit with the individual goals of those Mm. people you're working with, definitely. Yeah, you have to give physiology time. (laughs) Absolutely. You really can't speed it up, can you? (laughs) There's not always a magic wand out there. (laughs) No, that's very true. Fascinating. Is there anything else, Mel, that you would like to add? Any other thoughts or pearls of wisdom? Oh, I think we could keep chatting all day, Louise. (laughs) (laughs) I love these um, thought-provoking, stimulating conversations. Um, But, yes, as you've just sort of summarised, yeah, if we can get the message out there to consider um, when dancers may be more susceptible at injury at different stages of their training development that I've talked about and at different times of the year and how we can better prepare for those times when we can see there may be more susceptibility to injury. And that strength training is probably a really useful area in particular to reduce the risk of injuries, um, as well as aerobic fitness, um, because we know that dance technique classes aren't as good at training that aerobic capacity for our dancers. And a bit of a side note, but in the early stages of training, other sports can be really useful at developing these areas of fitness that can in turn help your dance. It's really good to have well-rounded aspects of fitness to help your dancing and then I know that there's not enough hours in the day as um, dancers <laughs> are getting older so you can't keep it all up <laughs> no. but it, it's really good to develop those skills at a young age and I think it can complement dance training hopefully they're all good messages that oh are- definitely great <laughs> thoughts absolutely and the last question that I have because I ask everybody who comes on the podcast this question is what are your preferred pair of point shoes sure so If I reflect on what I worked with, and it's been a little while since I've been training in point shoes, (laughs) Um, but the last pair of point shoes I wore were block serenade point shoes. So I really like the wider platform and where the shank bent, it just suited the shape of my foot. But yes, we know there's so many different types of point shoes out there nowadays and dancers are going to prefer different point shoes at different times of their training development and you know for professionals for different aspects of the repertoire that they're working with as well so yeah did you ever wear a different type of shoe yeah I certainly started in Mm. different point shoes when I you know as my first pair of point shoes serenades were just the last pair that I was wearing yeah cool amazing fantastic so yeah the block the block point shoe is um a bit of an Australian standard. Absolutely. Growing up in Australia. Australian standard. have tried block point shoes. <laughs> they last the distance through the humidity, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, very cool. Thank you so much for your time today, Mel. I think it's been a really, a really useful discussion and I'm going to link your social media and contact details in this podcast as well because you're around Brisbane and you are treating people too. So um, if anyone wants to get in contact 
definitely go and see Dr. Mel. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Thanks, Louise. It's been fantastic to have this chat today. As always, (laughs) we've had some good chats over the years, Lou. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And well done for getting good information out there. I've enjoyed the podcast that you've released so far that I've heard. So, yeah, thanks for having me on. It's been great. I'll talk to you soon, no doubt. (laughs) Okay, take care. Thank you. Bye. Thank you.